Welcome to the Grok Science Show. This is Tom Stewart. And I'm Steve Briscoe. This week, we're talking to Ben Winger, PhD candidate at the University of Chicago in the Committee on Evolutionary Biology. Ben is an ornithologist, a bird biologist, who studies speciation, the process by which new species form. The question, how does one species split into two, is fundamental to biology and is one that scientists have been trying to answer since Darwin. To understand the origin of species, Ben travels to the cloud forests of eastern Peru. Well, I work on the Andean slopes, Peru and Ecuador, so in cloud forest. What is cloud forest? Cloud forest is a humid, high-elevation forest. So on the <clears throat> slopes of the Andes, the jungle of the Amazon creeps up the side of the mountain, and it's still very humid, but because of uh, the cooler climate, the forest is quite different. So it's very thick, covered in bamboo and epiphytes and moss and uh, it's generally difficult terrain to work in because it's steep, muddy, thick vegetation, but it's a lot of fun. So we try to work in uh, areas that haven't been worked in very much before, so some of the more isolated parts of Peru. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of uh, isolated areas that have not been covered very much by biologists because they're so difficult to get to. Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru in general are um, amazing places for birds, and South America is really the bird continent. And the western Amazon basin, where the uh, Amazon meets the Andes, is one of the biodiverse, most biodiverse areas in the world. So on the slopes of the Andes from 300 to 3,000 meters, you can find a tremendous diversity of birds. In Peru in particular, uh, the Andes are interesting because there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of topographical complexity, so there are a lot of isolated mountains with their kind of their own isolated bird populations, which can sometimes um, mean uh, endemic bird species or new bird species, essentially species that are only found in a very small area and uh, nowhere, nowhere else on Earth. I'm interested in bird speciation, and the Andes of Peru and Ecuador are uh, really excellent place to study bird speciation because there are so many different species of birds and I am looking at speciation across a biogeographic barrier. In northern Peru there's a big river valley called the Marañón which is a canyon. Cloud forest birds that live in these humid habitats don't cross this barrier and haven't crossed it for a long time. Consequently different species have evolved on either side of the Marañón River and so I'm trying to figure out how these species have evolved, how long it takes, and essentially learning more about speciation uh, in this area of the world. About once a year, Ben travels to Peru to study populations of birds that have recently split from a common ancestor, which are now separated by the Marignan River. When populations become split geographically and form new species, this is referred to as allopatric speciation. So allopatric speciation is speciation in geographical isolation. So it's, it's really intuitive, actually, if you consider a bird species or any other plant or animal species that, for some reason, 
populations of the species become separated from one another geographically. Maybe a, a mountain uh, arises out of the earth and, and bisects the, the range of a species, or a population of birds somehow gets out onto an island and they're isolated there. Essentially, allopatric speciation occurs when no gene flow is happening between populations. So two populations are completely geographically isolated and over time they evolve differences. And it's an area of active research about whether uh, this is the only way speciation happens in birds or whether birds can also evolve differences when their populations are only partially isolated from one another. Allopatric speciation sounds straightforward. A once continuous population breaks up into smaller groups, and after enough time in isolation, these subgroups become so different from one another that they can no longer interbreed. These lineages are now different species and free to evolve independently. But as Ben mentioned, the reality isn't always so tidy. There might not be a single clean break between groups. Let's imagine a scenario. A river splits a population of birds into two. After this, they don't usually come into contact with one another. But, every 10 years, a wayward bird gets blown across the river, finding itself among the birds of the other population. Is this enough contact to maintain gene flow between the groups and keep them from splitting into two species? What if, instead, it's one bird getting blown across the river every year, or every 100 years? Discovering just how much contact groups have had in the past and how, differently, how different they are now is crucial to understanding speciation. Yeah, so the Marignan is a barrier that's created allopatric speciation. And so one of the things I want to know is how much interbreeding has occurred across the Marignan between populations through time. So we see birds that look different on both sides. Are the birds that look different on either side of this, this river, have they been completely separated from one another for one another for a long period of time? Or have they only been partially separated? That is, can some birds uh, manage to uh, fly across the valley or and their populations across the valley at different climatic periods, and so they've had a little bit of gene flow. And if they have a little bit of gene flow between populations, can differences in, in song and plumage still evolve? To discover how much contact groups have had with one another, Ben turns to genetics. Consider uh, two different bird species that have differences in song or their plumage pattern. I'm interested in how long this process takes and um, how much gene flow or interbreeding can happen before plumage differences don't evolve. That is, how isolated do populations need to be from one another, and for how much time do they need to be isolated in order to evolve differences. Traditionally, we would use a method of DNA sequencing known as Sanger sequencing to sequence essentially one gene at a time. <laughs> and uh, I've done this with uh, mitochondrial DNA, which is a really nice marker to kind of understand the baseline levels of genetic differences between populations. But to really understand um, detailed things like gene flow, you need to sequence more genes. And in the last five years, there's been a, a revolution in biology where it's all of a sudden very easy to sequence many different genes at once and get millions of, of base pairs of DNA to use for analysis. So I collect genetic data, both looking at mitochondrial DNA and genomic data using some newer methods, uh, next generation sequencing. I also collect data on the phenotypes of birds, so vocal data. So I go out with a microphone and record uh, bird songs. And then I can collect data on plumage and morphology, or anatomy, from museum specimens. 
So I measure the colors of museum specimens and just use uh, ruler and calipers to measure various anatomical features. And with the combination of genetic and phenotypic data, we can figure out <clears throat> basically how differences among populations evolve. My approach is to use this study system of Andean birds as kind of a natural experiment to understand how speciation works. And so my goal is to understand what levels of gene flow will prevent uh, speciation from happening. And it, I suppose, remains to be seen how applicable the results will be generally. But we're using the same methods to uh, look at uh, genetic differentiation across all kinds of different species, birds and other animals throughout the world. And, um, you know, over time, I think a, a picture will emerge about the relationship between genetics and, and speciation. Part of the reason I think this work is so exciting is that it's a perfect example of technology catching up with theory. The questions Ben is asking go way back. For decades, scientists have been theorizing, drawing up equations, and studying a few model systems in the laboratory to understand the genetics of speciation. Now, with the revolution in molecular, technolog in molecular technologies, the scientists can leave the lab, traveling into the wild to places like the Peruvian cloud forests, to test these theories. For all of the exciting, new science that Ben's doing, he's also carrying on in the tradition of a field biologist, suiting up and trekking into the wilderness to make discoveries. Yeah, well, it's interesting and it's a lot of fun because essentially to get into the areas where we work requires some really old-school technology, such as uh, learning how to pack a, a mule or a horse to carry your equipment into the field, or even sometimes carrying it on your back when you're working on trails that can't support pack animals. So, uh, but the equipment you're bringing in is sometimes a liquid nitrogen tank to preserve samples that you will, that we end up doing uh, really cutting edge genetic uh, methods with. So it's sort of a strange combination of two worlds. So as a graduate student in ornithology, it's been really fun to have to learn not only how to um, do the science in terms of analyzing the data, both the lab work and the, the computer science involved, but also the literally boots in the mud work to uh, get the samples in the first place and um, get to some of these exciting areas in remote parts of the world. Planning a field season typically means a lot of time spent on Google Earth, so trying to find, use satellite imagery to find areas of a certain kind of habitat, so you can, <clears throat> even if satellite images are years old, you can usually have a good idea of where there is an extensive area of habitat versus uh, areas that are mostly covered in agriculture. So we spent a lot of time on Google Earth plotting um, the locations of previous field endeavors by different museums, trying to figure out where, where we can go uh, that would make the, the strongest impact scientifically. One of the responsibilities you have as a field researcher is being an ambassador for the scientific community. When Ben travels, he takes care to reach out to members of the community near where he works to explain his research. In order to work in an area, we meet with the community beforehand and explain what we're doing and uh, the science and behind it and also the, the sort of interest we have in the biodiversity of the area. And generally, people have been excited about having us there and at the end we try to sort of give them a short presentation on, on some of the highlights of the things we found. And during the process of working in an area, though, of course, we're hiring support staff, cooks, and people to help cut trails and uh, 
We also, on every trip I've been through, we brought along a few Peruvian students who are, tend to be biology students from Lima or some of the uh, larger c- cities and towns in Peru. Students either working on their undergraduate degrees or who have recently received their undergraduate degrees and are looking for more field experience. We've been talking about how important it is to understand the movement of individuals between populations if you want to discover how new species form. It probably shouldn't come as a surprise then that Ben also is studying um, migration in birds. All of us here in Chicago are familiar with the sight of geese in V-shaped flocks heading south. If you're lucky enough to be in the right part of the United States, you might also have a chance to spot the migration of the warblers. Yeah, one of the other things I work on is uh, the evolution of bird migration. And uh, for this, I mostly use uh, phylogenetic methods. And what I mean by that is uh, using a phylogeny, which is a, a family tree of species, to kind of reconstruct how migration evolved through time. And so one of the main spectacles of, of bird migration in this country are the warblers. There's a few dozen species of uh, warblers that you can see in eastern North America. Uh, many of them are really bright and colorful and just really exciting to go out on a, a day of birding in Chicago and see 15 or 20 species of warblers. And the project I did was to use the family tree of warblers, their phylogeny, to understand how uh, migration evolved. And the conclusion that we came to was that migration has been happening for millions of years in this family of birds, the warblers, and that was probably ancestral. That is the earliest warbler was probably a migratory bird that bred in North America and migrated somewhere in the tropics and many of the species of warblers that only breed in the tropics are actually descended from uh, this northern ancestor and this this was kind of a interesting result because many people had speculated that migratory warblers were actually originally found in Central or South America and uh, evolved migration by extending their breeding range in North America and we kind of found the opposite pattern. Like most ornithologists, Ben's passion for birds is not a recent one. Uh, well, the first time I got into birds, I was 12 years old and was on a family trip in Wyoming in the Grand Tetons, and a family friend was a bird watcher, and um, we were seeing a lot of birds on our hike, and bird I mentioned is my favorite bird, the Clark's Nutcracker, is actually the bird that kind of got me interested in birding and that was because it flew across the trail as we were hiking and I didn't know what it was but I was able to use a field guide to identify it and I'd never really used a field guide before and something about through a book and figuring out what this bird was and that it had a name and a kind of a whole history and kind of really for some reason stuck with me and I and I think every birder and ornithologist has some kind of similar story about why they got into birds, and for a lot of us it was sort of this process of uh, figuring things out from a field guy. And he continues to do this, now as a scientist. Ben explores parts of the world where few biologists have ever been, and tries to figure out what exactly, or what species of bird am I looking at. A couple of years ago, he and some colleagues from Cornell University organized a research expedition to Peru. On this trip, they discovered a species of bird previously unknown to science. Every year there are a very small handful of new bird species described, some of which are the result of taxonomic changes. For example, a population may have earlier been known as a subspecies or 
people weren't really sure what it was, and I got uh, on further research was decided to be a full species. But this one that I was probably describing was actually a new discovery. That is, we went to an area of Peru that had never been visited by ornithologists, very isolated mountain ridge, and on this mountain ridge we found a completely new species. The population had never been seen by by scientists or ornithologists before, although it was known by the local hunters who live there. And we have subsequently described it and named it uh, the Sierra Barbet. Um, the scientific name is Capito Fitzpatrickii. I'll encourage you all to look up the Sierra Barbet. It's a beautiful animal. Its white face is interrupted by a bland a black bandit-like stripe covering its eyes. On its head, it has a little yellow scarlet cap. <laughs> Excuse me. On its head, it has a little scarlet cap, and its breast is a bright red patch, which gives way to yellow on its belly. Work like this is tremendously important. Most species on Earth are not described, and we need to first to know which species are out there if we want to have a chance at all of pr- preserving biodiversity. I asked Ben about his plans for the future. Uh, well, we're hoping to return to the the eastern Andes of Peru uh, in the next year on a couple of field expeditions. I'm not entirely sure where yet, but we're looking on, uh, looking on satellite imagery and talking with colleagues in Peru to try and figure out, narrow down, narrow down our options. Uh, some areas in Peru have been essentially off limits to, to researchers or anyone for a number of years because of the danger of drug trafficking and even terrorism. But some of these areas in the last five or ten years have become much safer to, to work in, and so we're hoping to, to visit some of the places that have not been visited by ornithologists in the age of genetic research. Thanks to Ben Winger for sharing his research with us. His recent paper, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, is titled Ancestry and Evolution of Seasonal Migration in Perulidae. Thanks also to Ben Rubin, who helped us with the interview.